Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. We're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch, and the Julius Jones case has been getting most of the attention on that beat. Jones, convicted of a 1998 murder, was spared less than four hours before his scheduled execution when the governor commuted his sentence to life in prison without parole. Keaton, there was quite a bit of time between the Pardon and Parole Board's recommendation for clemency and Governor Stitt's announcement, wasn't there? Yeah, so the, the Pardon and Parole Board originally recommended clemency on November 1st, and uh, that was at in Stitt's hands, and, and Stitt made an announcement um, on November 18th around noon, uh, so about two and a half weeks there. It's a lot of time to, to wonder. Uh, when Governor Stitt decided to grant clemency, it was just, as you mentioned, four hours before Jones scheduled execution. Did previous governors wait till the final hours like that before announcing a decision? Yeah, so last week I, I looked into how previous governors uh, handled clemency decisions, um, both Frank Keating and Brad Henry, um, who served as governors in the 2000s, uh, granted clemency. Um, and of those cases I looked at, it was always um, several days in advance uh, before the scheduled execution. Um, so kind of the last-minute decision um, on a clemency case, uh, pretty rare. Unusual to wait till, till that close. Correct. Okay. Uh, now, you were in McAllister when Stitt issued the executive order uh, granting clemency to Jones. What was the environment like around the prison, and how did Jones's supporters react when that announcement was made? Yeah, so uh, me and two colleagues showed up to McAllister around noon last Thursday, and there was uh, lots of security around the prison. Um, you had to you had to have media credentials or be part of state government to even get past the checkpoint. Um, so definitely lots of security. Um, it, everyone was prepared to to go through with the execution if there wasn't word from the governor's office. Um, and right outside of the security checkpoint, um, several dozen, if not hundreds, of Jones's supporters were were gathered, uh, hoping that there would be a last-minute stay of execution, which there was. Um, and after that, after that news came, um, you know, I saw several people, you know, crying tears of joy, um, obviously pleased with the decision. Uh, Stitt didn't go as far as to recommend life in prison with the possibility of parole, um, but several of his supporters said, you know, obviously good that his life was spared and we're, we're going to keep fighting and trying to get him out of prison. That makes sense. Now, this was your first time to go cover an execution in person. T tell us a little about that experience and what was going through your head. Yeah, so obviously, uh, uncharted territory, um, executions of before last month had been stayed for several years. Um, so kind of the preparation process of it was just, you know, getting myself accustomed to what the day go what the day is like, how names are drawn and whatnot. Um, and I guess just mentally preparing to to put my name in the hat and be ready to to witness uh, the execution if there is one. Um, you know, obviously important for the for the media to be there and to give um, an independent account of what the state is doing. 
was that uh, mentally trying to imagine what that was going to be like and prepare for that? Was that emotionally difficult? I would say so. Um, obviously, you know, part part of the job, you know, you have, sometimes have to put yourself in difficult decisions. And, um, you know, obviously on the day of, there might be some adrenaline, you know, you're doing your job, you're in the moment, but you always have to consider the after of, of taking care of yourself mentally. Um, and thankfully, I had a lot of support from my colleagues in that regard. Good. Uh, now, uh, the governor is going to have to make another clemency decision here in the the coming few weeks, isn't he? Correct. Yeah, there's uh, the next execution of Bigler Stouffer is scheduled for December 9th. Uh, today, Tuesday, um, a federal judge denied a stay of execution for him. Uh, his attorneys are going to appeal to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. But as of now, that's scheduled. Uh, but the parole board for Bigler Stouffer has recommended, voted 3-2 to recommend clemency uh, to him, not because they believe he's innocent, but because they believe the state's execution product protocol is flawed. Um, so Stitt will, will have to make a decision in that case as well. All right. Thanks, Keaton. Listeners can read all of Keaton's criminal justice coverage at OklahomaWatch.org. Trevor Brown covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch and collected the thoughts of legislators and others after Governor Stitt announced the commutation of Julius Jones' death sentence. Uh, Trevor, the lead-up to Julius Jones' clemency turned into a political issue in some regards. Can you talk about some of the lobbying efforts by politicians here in Oklahoma? Yeah, as many of the listeners know, this is campaigns going on for weeks, months, you know, even stretching years for some people. And it really has, you know, extended into politics. Um, you know, we saw a lot of Democrats um, in the House and Senate here in Oklahoma really ingrained into the issue. Some of them were very close with the family. Um, one of them, Representative Turner, even camped out overnight at the governor's mansion the day before. Um, but we also saw it was a bit of a bipartisan issue. Um, five Republican lawmakers, they submitted a letter to Gover- Governor Stitt right before the execution, you know, asking him to, to say it. Um, you know, they, they weren't opposing the death penalty in itself, which I think is a distinction for many Democrats, but they had some doubts about the actual case, and their thought process was, unless you're 100% sure, we should not go through with this. What was the response then from both Republicans and Democrats after the governor's decision to commute Jones' sentence to life in prison without parole? Yes, almost immediately after the decision, there is a wave of tweets and messages of support from Democrats. You know, some of them just simply tweeted, thank you, Governor Stitt. Um, Minority leaders Kay and Virgin later put out, you know, statements saying they're thankful for the governor and kind of giving him, you know, some credit for making this move. You know, that's kind of notable for a couple reasons. One, Democrats and Stitt haven't really seen eye to eye on, on many issues, especially some of these cultural you know, hot button issues of the day as of late. Um, and, you know, it's number two, we're, we're heading into election season. So, you know, you usually don't see, you know, Democrats, you know, giving the Republican a victory, but this is a, an issue, I think, that kind of superseded that. Some people, though, including Oklahoma's uh, fairly recently appointed attorney general, were really unhappy with the decision. Yeah, there was a few messages of support from fellow Republicans, including Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell, but um, Oklahoma Attorney General John O'Connor 
um, put out one of the most, you know, uh, forceful statements against the decision. You know, he said that he was greatly disappointed and, you know, while he spec- respected the governor's, um, you know, authority and his decision-making progress, you know, he cited the 22 years of, you know, legal work that's gone into the case. And, you know, he really affirmed his office's belief, which is shared by, you know, some other prosecutors in the state that, that uh, Julius Jones was guilty of the crimes. You know, so he, he definitely had a, a weird kind of situation where the person that the governor just appointed kind of criticizing him. But, you know, that was that was one of the louder um, opponents of the governor's move. Well, the last few weeks with uh, uh, one execution that many think uh, didn't go very well and now the, uh, the commutation of this very high-profile uh, death penalty case and then a few more coming in the pipeline. These are the first uh, we've had in half a dozen years here mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. Um, and as you might expect, uh, people start talking now about uh, whether we should have capital punishment at all in Oklahoma, as uh, uh, many states and most other countries uh, no longer include that. Um How's that playing out right now? What's the discussion around the death penalty in general? Yeah, so right after the governor's decision, you definitely saw a lot of people come out on Twitter saying, you know, the next step is getting rid of the death penalty altogether. You know, you had some groups like the ACLU, um, you had the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. saying, you know, Oklahoma and other states that still have this, this is a, you know, another reason why if we're not 100% sure when you're putting someone to death, you shouldn't have the process at all. Um, here in Oklahoma, though, uh, the death penalty has pretty remained pretty positive. Pretty people remain pretty supportive of it. In 2016, there's a state question um, that pretty much asked voters to reaffirm the death penalty. Um, Two thirds of Oklahomans voted to support that, and a recent poll from a GPO, GOP strategist found a little bit less than that, but about 64% still support it. So, you know, we're still in a pretty you know, conservative state. A lot of people are still on the law and order kind of platform. So it's there may not be the political will at this point, but it definitely seems like the voices that are asking the state leaders or, you know, potential voters if there's another state question to, to reexamine the issue. And, and just, you know, the state's history as executions is definitely more ammunition for supporters that say that, we need to get rid of this process. Well, thanks, Trevor. And be sure to sign up for Trevor's Capital Watch newsletter at oklahomawatch.org. Whitney Bryan has been covering the pandemic's toll on nursing homes for Oklahoma Watch and recently published data that showed 11 more deaths in a two-week span. But getting that data has been difficult. Whitney, how did you learn about these recent COVID-related deaths at Oklahoma's nursing homes? Well, Ted, we've been getting updates every week, every Wednesday, through the state's epidemiology reports that are released um, on the number of deaths and COVID cases in the state's nursing homes, assisted living facilities, veteran centers, really any long-term care facility. Um, Up until about two weeks ago, we were getting that every week. And then the state decided to stop providing that data publicly. Um, But we pushed back and said, hey, 
the public deserves to have that information. It's still pertinent. It's vital. And family members who have loved ones in these facilities also pushed back. And as a response to that, the state decided we were right and that it was vital information that the public deserved. So last week on Wednesday, we got the updated numbers again. And basically, I did some simple math um, and looked at two weeks prior and the current report, and there were 11 new cases, uh, deaths related to COVID-19 in those facilities. Well, getting getting that data about how COVID has affected uh, long-term care facilities, both the residents and the staff, which uh, we shouldn't overlook, that's been a bit of a tug of war with the state all along, hasn't it? It has. Um, Back in March of 2020, when COVID came to Oklahoma initially, um, we started asking pretty quickly for that information. You know, we had already seen cases um, exploding in nursing homes across the country, you know, especially in places like uh, Washington State um, that had some of the, the first and most severe outbreaks in these facilities. So we knew that this was going to be an issue when COVID arrived in Oklahoma, and we immediately began asking for that data. Um, the state was really resistant at first. There were a lot of privacy concerns that they had, um, as well as just, you know, gathering data for, you know, there's about 650 of these facilities across the state um, is a real challenge. But eventually they they gave in to us. Uh, they agreed, again, that, you know, it was vital public information, and they started providing that to us um, on a daily and then, you know, after that, a weekly basis since April of 2020. Um, back in May of this year, so just a little over a year after they started providing that data, they scaled it back from being a, a daily update that they were reporting to being a weekly reported update. Um, and they said, you know, with the vaccine being available now, we expect fewer and fewer cases, fewer and fewer deaths among these folks. So we're, we're scaling back. So we've been getting it every week since then, but it, it definitely did not come without its challenges. So why... Uh, why was that so difficult with the state? I think, um, you know, one perception is, well, you know, if, if it's bad news, they don't want to share it, right? Might might make somebody look bad. Public might have a negative reaction. So we're just going to kind of play this close to the chest. Is that what's going on here? Or, or are there other reasons? Is it difficult data for them to gather? Is it especially time consuming or challenging for them? Yeah, there are a lot of complicating factors in pulling this data together. So first of all, um, you know, the nursing homes and the facilities themselves are required to report to the state. So they're relying on facilities um, who for much of the past year and a half have been scrambling with, you know, staff shortages to deal with outbreaks and deaths and this virus that's still very much unfamiliar to them. Um, So it's a time crunch for the staff in these facilities to be able to report and track this information accurately. Then they're sending it to the state health department, which obviously has also been, um, you know, scrambling to try to keep track of this data and understand what's going on on a bigger scale. Um, It is a a huge um, pull on their resources. And that's one of the reasons that the state health department, that Commissioner uh, Keith Reed told me recently, that they decided to stop providing that data to the public. It is a a manual data set that they are having to pull every week and verify. Uh, it takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of time for them to do that. So why why does it matter? Why do we need them to do that? Why is knowing, you know, how many nursing home residents or staff members 
have died from COVID uh, important for Oklahomans? Well, it's important for a lot of reasons, but I think the number one reason is the data that we're seeing, the numbers that we're seeing now every week, those are people's lives. Um, those numbers represent humans. Um, so for every you know increased death, we, we talked about 11 new deaths over that two-week period um, when they stopped reporting the data temporarily. That's 11 people who died from COVID-19. Um, so for family members who, in many cases, couldn't get inside these facilities to visit their loved ones for a very long time, maybe they still can't get in because COVID is still a risk to their communities and their own lives, um, this is a way that they can check in and see how their loved one's facility is handling, you know, any continued outbreaks um, and how the residents and, and staff inside those facilities um, you know, are reacting to outbreaks, whether they're extremely severe and causing death um, or whether, you know, the vaccine and, and other resources are helping people to survive at this point. Does that nursing homes are a pretty, you know, slim um, slice of the pie, right? When we look at the population as a whole, but um, it's a, a group that's very much at risk, right? High vulnerability group. So does does gauging just nursing homes, just looking at that data, does that serve as a meter at all for what's going on in the larger picture? Or is it a, a subset that stands all by itself? It's both, really, is the complicated answer. Uh, these are the most vulnerable people to COVID-19 in the state of Oklahoma because of their age, um, because of pre-existing conditions, and, and just overall health. Um, so... You know, I think in some ways it is a um, it's a special set of data that we're seeing here. Um, it's not necessarily reflective of the broader community that that facility is in. However, it is reflective of the community in other ways. For instance, the staff at the at these nursing homes that we're looking at, they live and work and um, have kids in school in these communities. So in that way, it's very much relevant to what's happening in the community outside of the facility. As well as, you know, we talked to a facility in Alva last year. We've spoken about this on the podcast recently. They saw a lot of extra challenge because their communities were not stepping up and implementing, you know, mandates and restrictions and were having very severe outbreaks in their community. That's how it got into their facility. So they are very much tied together, but the nursing home facility numbers are not necessarily indicative of what's happening happening in the community outside of those walls. You, you mentioned that you recently talked to Keith Reed, the, the director. Do you have any sense that the state will uh, make any adjustments to either make the data easier for them to collect or make it more readily available to the public? Yes. In fact, I heard from Keith today. Um, he informs me that they are now going to reinstitute that weekly reporting. So last week's report that we got, that was not a fluke, a one-time, um, you know, okay, we'll give in and, and give Whitney the data because she won't stop asking for it. Uh, they are going to start including that, that data that they were including previously in those weekly reports. They're going to start doing that again. So we should see that data, you know, this week on Wednesday, next week 
week on Wednesday um, and into the future. And they're also uh, reinstituting some other data that they pulled back on around that same time, including uh, some zip code and, and city level case data, as well as vaccine data as well. So that's all um, on the state health department's website now and is being updated regularly. Great. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read all of Whitney's coverage of this and other issues at OklahomaWatch.org. Oklahoma Watch is a nonprofit organization specializing in investigative journalism. You can find us on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. We'd like you to know that we're a 501c3, and in order to bring you consistent, investigative, nonpartisan journalism throughout Oklahoma, we rely on donors like you. During the months of November and December, we participate in a program called Newsmatch, where a couple of large public foundations match every single dollar that readers and listeners like you contribute to our organization. If you value the news that we provide, you can go to oklahomawatch.org, go to our donation page, and every dollar that you're able to donate will be matched by the Newsmatch program from now through the end of the year. Thanks for listening.